0: Um, so if we can get right to the text today, if you'll please stand with me. Um, I'll read the text for us. And uh, just out of honor of the Word of God, we stand um, to introduce the text and to read it together. The text is found in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42. This text may not have surprised many um, as most of you are aware, we've been going through the book of Acts in our Sunday school class. We've, um, we've actually found ourselves in, through Acts chapter 9. The last thing we looked at there was the conversion of the Apostle Paul, this man who went from Saul of Tarsus to the great Apostle Paul that we know. Um, but we want to return to this text here um, today to see what it has to say to our church as well. So let's read together Acts 2.42. The text says... They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, as I was saying, we, we wanted to return to this text to look a little more closely, um, to, to gain some insight from this text into some of the, the most important, the most important foundational aspects of this early church. And from here, we're going to gain um, some practical theology for our own church. Practical theology simply meaning um, the working out of our theology, uh, putting into practice the things that we believe. And so we've read the text today, and what we see here is basically a list a list of what we're going to go through and see are, are really characteristics or marks of a very healthy, spirit-filled church. And I'm going to have five marks from this text. Um, you may see four at first glance, but I'm actually going to make the very first mark. The mark is going to be how this church went about the other marks that make up a, a healthy church. You see that in the words, they're continually devoting themselves to these things. And so that's actually going to be the first mark. The following marks here in our text are, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And to prayer, as I said, these are really, as we're going to see, some very foundational things for a spiritual church to be taking part in. These are foundational marks. These are the means of grace that God has given to his church and therefore our church as well for our growth, for our sanctification, and for our joy. And since these are the graces that God provides to his His church, uh, we we would be wise to take heed to them and to make sure that we are implementing these things as much as humanly possible. Uh, Because the implementation, the exercising of these very graces here in our text, these graces that God has ordained for his church, um, these things are are vital for the very life and health of the church. Uh, Because it's sure to be a dead church that does not feed and grow off these graces in our text. It's going to be a spiritless church that's not satisfied with these blessings that God provides for his church And a church will inevitably one day find itself in apostasy if it doesn't remain in the graces that are set before us today. The church is a body of individuals. And so as individuals, it's going to be up to each of us, um, in particular, to note each and every one of these marks of of a healthy church and to make sure that we are actively pursuing them to make sure that we're pursuing them to the point that we are actually growing from them. And so as each of us, as each of us individually grow in these things, our church as a body will grow and glorify our Lord and Savior more and more, which is, as Emilio said earlier, this is the entire reason that we exist, is to glorify our Savior. So before before really we get into the the meat of all these details, um, let's first determine who it is that's making up this church that we're looking at because the text says they, they were continually devoting themselves, so who is the they? Well, if the majority of you have been in Sunday school class, so I'm gonna do a, a very quick run through on who the they are here, but if you'll look back at Acts chapter 1, verse 14, this church started um, with, with one group of people. In Acts chapter 1, um, verse 15, it is. It says, At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together. Now, this, these first 120 were here awaiting the promise that Jesus Christ had given to them. They were here awaiting the coming promised of the Holy Spirit and he did come most assuredly in power. 10 days later, the Spirit showed up. And the text tells us that the Spirit showed up with such a great power of the the sound of a loud rushing wind. It says that tongues of fire appeared over all of these 120 and actually gave them the ability to speak in other tongues, in other languages, that is. And because this happened at the Feast of Pentecost, there was many Jews in Jerusalem, thousands in fact, that had come to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, and they all heard this mighty loud rushing wind and gathered to this house where this 120 were gathered to see what all the ruckus and commotion was about. And as we know, Peter, Peter the Apostle, took full advantage of this, this crowd that gathered around this house. And he stood up amongst the brethren And he preached Christ to these gathered Jews at Pentecost. He preached Christ to them, and the Spirit of God saw fit to to mightily bless his preaching. Note there um, in chapter 2, verse 41, what happens here as a result of Peter's uh, preaching of his sermon. It says, So then, those who had received his word, that's the preaching of Peter, they were baptized. In that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So this is the church that we're looking at here. It's a combination of two groups. The believers that were there in the room, the 120 that received the Spirit, that have just been reunited with 3,000 brand new converts. This is the church that we are looking at, um, and this is a, is a Spirit-filled church full of believers, um, all who are seeking to glorify the Savior and so that's the church. Now let's, let's look at the very first aspect here of this church's fruit, the first mark, if you will, um, that made this such a Christ-glorifying congregation. So we're back in Acts 2.42. Um, Luke begins by saying they were continually devoting themselves. Now remember, I'm actually going to make this one of the, the marks of a healthy church, how this church went about Um, doing the things that it was doing. They were continually devoting themselves, it says. Uh, BDAG, which is is just a very reputable um, Greek lexicon or dictionary, as we would call it, Um, it further defines this expression of how the church was devoting themselves. It says they were persistent or persevering in something. This is just a fuller definition of um, devoting yourself. And I think um, our English words actually convey this meaning quite well. This church is very easily understand what was going on. They were devoting, they were fully devoting themselves to these things. Um, If you have an ESV or an NIV, um, you're going to be missing a word here that we have in our NASB. The NASB actually adds the word continually. It says they were continually devoting themselves. This is a very helpful word to add uh, because the word in the Greek for devoting themselves is in the imperfect tense. And that means that what Luke was trying to to uh, to communicate is that this was an ongoing action. So the NASB is very helpful in the fact that it adds the word continually. They were continually devoting themselves to these things we're going to look at, which means that the church did not simply, from time to time, um, exercise these things. They didn't just do these things when... Um, It seemed convenient. Um, Not at all. The church continually devoted themselves to these things. Um, This church did not simply get converted and squeeze church life into their already busy schedules. Um, That's not what was going on with them, as we'll see. Um, The church becomes their very lives, and we'll see that as we look at this church's lives Um, The church becomes the primary focus of everything that they're doing with their lives. And this type of perseverance, this type of devotion to the church of God um, should not be a strange thing for us. It should not be odd. Um, The church is where believers are. And wherever believers are is where the Holy Spirit is. And wherever the Holy Spirit is, anyone with the Holy Spirit should be drawn like a magnet. Um, so the coming together of the church should not be a strange thing. Where else would you want to be than where God is? So continuing in the things of God is indeed a very good sign. It's very good fruit. If you want to turn to John chapter fifteen 8, we'll look at the words of Jesus himself Um, on this point. John chapter 15, verse 8. Jesus says it like this there in John 15, 8. He says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Prove to be my disciples. So the continuation of bearing fruit The continuation of of being actively involved in the church and all the graces that are there um, for the believer is a very good indication of fruit, healthy fruit. It says that in continuing in these things, you're glorifying the Father and you're proving yourself to be a disciple. And to not continue in these things of God is likewise not a good indication of one's spiritual well-being. Look in the same context, John 15, look at John 15, 6 now, John 15, 6, here Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. So with these things in mind, um, let's move now into this very first activity that this spirit filled church was continually devoting themselves to. And the text says, Acts 2.42, they were continually, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Now, as we look at this list here in Acts 2.42, um, I'm not too sure that there's really any uh, particular order of importance or significance in any of the things in this list, except for this first one the primacy of the apostles teaching is rightfully at the head of this list of the church's endeavors. The apostles teaching is what would have informed the church of how to perform all the other exercises here in our list. The apostles teaching is foundational. And so why is the apostles teaching foundational and not uh, the prayer, the breaking of bread, the fellowship? Why are these not the foundational aspect of the church? It's because it was to them, it was, it was to the apostles that Jesus spoke these words in John fourteen 26. I'll just read it to you. Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That was spoken to Jesus' his disciples who became the apostles. The apostles were given this authority, this ability to remember, to recall all of the teachings, all of the life of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the revealer of God the Father. And brothers and sisters, we are um, so blessed in what we have, um, what we've been given by God um, that we don't have to wonder what these teachings were of the apostles. It's not for us to guess, because what we have in the very canon of our New Testament is just that. It's the apostles' teaching. The New Testament is nothing but the apostles' doctrine, the, the recallings, the spirit-induced recallings of the teachings of Jesus Christ himself. We're blessed in this way. In order for a writing uh, to have even been included in the New Testament canon. It would have had to have been written by an apostle or by someone who uh, was an associate, who was associated with an apostle so that that apostle could have approved their writings. Uh, The very book we're looking at here, the book of Acts is a perfect example of this. Uh, The book of Acts was written by Luke. Luke was not an apostle, um, but Luke was inspired by the Holy Spirit to not only write the book that we're looking at today, Luke uh, uh, Acts, but he also wrote the Gospel of Luke as well. And so his writings would have been approved by the Apostle Paul. Luke was an associate of the Apostle Paul in his missionary endeavors, and, and Paul uh, most obviously gave his divinely guided approval to the authenticity of Luke's writings. And it's very interesting to note um, one point just on the Paul-Luke uh, combination here uh, that became Scripture is that if, if you're familiar with uh, 1 Timothy 5.18, is maybe just a, a, a Scripture to note, is that there in 1 Timothy 5.18, the Apostle Paul actually um, calls Luke's gospel writing Scripture. He calls it Scripture. Um, if you remember the text, the text that he quotes from Luke's gospel is, "...the laborer is worthy of his wages." There, Paul's, uh, it's in context of Paul's teaching that uh, the preaching and teaching elder of the church is, is worthy of pay. That's the context that it's founded in, and Paul quotes that saying, saying it's Scripture, and the only place in the Bible that that is found is in the Gospel of Luke. The Apostle Paul quotes his missionary companion's writings as Scripture. Um, now, the apostles obviously taught um, more than what we have in our 26 books of the New Testament. Um, but obviously, God has seen fit that this is sufficient for us to know and to understand what the apostles were teaching. It's just really as, as the end of John's gospel says, John there at the very end of his gospel says that if everything that, that Jesus Christ had done and was written in the books, all the entire world could not hold them, um, that, that, that's true. Um, If if everything that Jesus taught and said would have been written in book form, uh, there would have been no containing of them. We would never even be able to make it through them. But God has definitely um, given us everything we need in the scriptures so that we are adequately equipped for every good work. Okay, so let's look now at an actual example here in our text of the apostles' teaching. Um, If you'll notice, look at Acts 2.22. Here's just an excerpt. We're just going to look at an excerpt from Peter's first sermon, Acts 2.22-24. We'll just read these verses together. This is really, I think, the heart of of Peter's first sermon here that converted 3,000 people. Beginning at verse 22, Peter said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. for him to be held in its power. So what is the heart of the apostolic preaching? What is the heart of the apostolic teaching? What's their message? The message is Christ. That's the heart of the apostolic message. Here in Peter's sermon, it's the life, the death, even the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is Peter's apostolic teaching. The apostle Paul, Um, sums up his apostolic teaching in the words in uh, Colossians 1.28, with one single word there. He says, we proclaim him. That sums up the apostolic teaching. We proclaim him. And there, Paul's speaking of Christ. That sums up the apostolic teaching. So as you look through, as you survey the New Testament uh, text, the New Testament gospels, the epistles, everything, What you're seeing here is that the apostles and the writers are simply expounding upon the work, the ministry, the life, the meaning of Jesus Christ. That's what we find in the New Testament. Uh, These writers are proving that Jesus Christ is the Old Testament Messiah that all of the Old Testament spoke of. They're gonna go on from there to, to expound and explain how sinners can be reconciled to God Through the work of this Messiah, which they explicitly teach is through repentance and faith in Christ alone. Repentance and faith is what they unambiguously teach, is how you are saved. If there's any here who have wondered what the apostolic teaching is, what the New Testament teaching is on how to be saved, the Bible says you must repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And then the apostles go on from there um, in their writings to show just how it is that a forgiven sinner is to live their life in order to glorify the God who saved them and to be ready for Christ's return. That's what we have as the apostles' teaching in the New Testament. The apostles were simply following the command that Jesus had given them. We call it the Great Commission. Jesus told them to go into all the nations teaching, baptizing, commanding them to do everything that I told you. That's what they're doing. They're just simply expounding on Jesus' command to teach us to observe all that he commanded. That's the apostolic teaching. So the next feature of this church that made it such a blessed fellowship was just that, the fellowship. Look back at Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to, to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship. Many of you may be familiar with the word translated here already as fellowship. The word is koinonia, a very common word in the New Testament. Um, This word could be further defined as a close association involving mutual interests and sharing. And what is the mutual interest that this early church shared? It was Christ. That was the common denominator. That's what this church shared. That was the mutual interest. That's the mutual association. Everything that they did centered around Christ. Everything. Now, what many people see in this text, what, what we see Luke doing is basically going on here after mentioning the fellowship that this church had, and really from here on out to the end of the chapter, all the way down to verse 47, what he seems to be doing is explaining further what kind of fellowship this church had. Starting here from, from the word fellowship, he really goes on to expound on this fellowship. What did it look like? How did it work itself out? And being that we're really gonna look here in a moment further at the breaking of bread and the prayers, Uh, we're gonna get more in depth in those specifically, but I did want to at least read down through uh, the end of the chapter, maybe beginning at verse 43, we'll see exactly how this fellowship worked out. Here we're gonna see this this beautiful fellowship. We're gonna see the oneness that this church shared. Let's begin reading in uh, verse 43. It says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. The word translated common there is koinos. It's in the same word group as koinonia. So here we just see another clue that this is going on to explain the fellowship. It's going on to explain how this fellowship worked and what kind of fellowship they had and this fellowship was not simply the type of fellowship that we normally think of when we think of fellowship you know they weren't simply sharing conversation around the coffee pot in the back Um, this church was sharing every single thing that they had now let's read on starting in verse 45 this time it says and they began selling their property and their possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were, con- they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now that's some fellowship. That is some real Fellowship. And many are are, are quick to qualify this aspect here of the fact that the members were selling their goods, they were selling their land, they were selling their properties and giving them to the needy. And it's proper, it's rightly so, to qualify this because this giving uh, was not a a mandatory um, sort of communistic system. That's not at all what was going on there. Um, This was not an enforced thing upon the believers. There was no command to do this. Uh, we saw as we went through Acts chapter 5, hopefully most of you are familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira is an example given to us in the book of Acts of a couple who sold some property, um, sold some land, and and, uh, was going to bring the money to the church. They were going to bring the proceeds to the church, and what Peter explicitly condemns them for is, is not the fact that they didn't bring all of the money. The fact of what he condemns them for is that they lied about how much money they were, in fact, breathing, uh, bringing. So even there, the condemnation was not that they didn't give everything that they had. Um, if you note in, in Acts 5.4, um, if you just need this to be proved to you, in Acts 5.4, uh, Peter tells Ananias that he could have done anything he wanted to do with the money that he, he received from selling his property. Peter, the church, was not telling them they had to give this money to the church. so There was no coercion in the situation. But this is most definitely a beautiful depiction of true fellowship. Um, this was nothing more, though, than, than genuine Christians, um, not white-knuckling their earthly possessions, not holding on to them tightly. But these people had a proper view of everyone in the church, even the poor. They had a proper view that the church, every single individual member of the church, is a part of the body of Christ, and they treated them like that. They honored and respected them and took care of them as they were the body of Christ. And I do think that Luke is setting this forward as a beautiful example for us to strive towards. We should be willing um, to part with earthly possessions if a member of this body needs help. We should be willing. Um, Whether you are willing or not to part with earthly possessions is a very good test of where your heart is, of where your faith is. Um, If you remember in Matthew 19, Jesus uses this very test uh, with the rich young ruler. This is the test that he puts before them. Would he be willing to sell his earthly goods? And there he really reveals the idolatry that this man had in his heart, the lack of love for the Savior that this man had um, because he loved his possessions so much, um, he couldn't imagine departing with them. Um, Look back at verse 44. Look at verse 244 because I love again how Luke describes this fellowship there. He says, and all those who had believed were together. They were together. This is important because fellowship cannot happen when the church is not together. And so with that being said, brothers and sisters, we need to do everything we can to come together. Which means you need to do everything you can to come together at every single service that we have. Do everything that you can to make it there. Do everything that you can to make it to Sunday school. To make it to every single small group. To every single evangelistic outreach where where beautiful fellowship is taking place. I guarantee you. Um, Do everything that you can because we don't want you to be deceived. Notice just in this text of the marks of a healthy church, fellowship is included. Do not be deceived. Fellowship is an essential mark of a healthy believer. So now, let's go on. Let's look at the last two uh, marks, the last two graces that Luke here describes of this healthy church. Uh, the next aspect of this church was that they were continually devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, if, if any of you have... Uh, dug into this text here at any depth, you'll be familiar that um, there is much um, ambiguity in this phrase amongst the commentators. They're trying to decide this. They're trying to decide, is the breaking of bread here referring to just a common meal that that everyone has? Because the Bible in in many places describes uh, the breaking of bread as just a common meal. That's what you call it when you eat, the breaking of bread. Or is what Luke referring to, is he speaking of the lord's supper because the bible also describes the lord's supper as the breaking of bread and now there is also an additional third camp where i actually find myself um, that i think luke is actually referring to a combination of the two and so how can that be how can luke be referring to both um, with the same phrase well it helps to understand that in the early church um, they very often Uh, partook of the Lord's Supper at the end of a a regular meal of which they would come together. Um, The Lord's Supper would take place at the end of this meal. It was called the agape feast. You may have heard it called the love feast. Um, This feast is explicitly referred to in Jude verse 12. And I think as we look at 1 Corinthians 11, um, in the, the classic text there that we always go to when we're, when we're looking at the Lord's Supper, you can see that um, a bigger meal in the context was actually going on there as well. So this church was continually devoting themselves to the breaking of bread, the, the coming together for a meal, and the Lord's Supper. And what's the significance of coming together in the Lord's Supper? Well, they're fellowshipping around the remembrance of Christ's sacrifice for them. It's just as Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what sweeter reason could there be to come together than to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to fellowship over the proclamation of his death. The Lord's Supper is, is quite a grace in and of itself that Lord has given to his church. It's such a vivid a vivid reminder of what Christ has done for us. The breaking of the bread just shows us the breaking of Christ's body. As we look at the cup, we see and we even taste uh, the reality that Jesus Christ shed his very blood for us. Now, even if this text, even if it isn't referring to the Lord's Supper, which I think it is, Um, there is still something about sharing a meal with someone that is special. The breaking of bread with somebody brings an intimacy, it brings a a closeness, a fellowship, it's just naturally there, is it not? Um, And this is part of the reason that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 5.11, he says that you're not even to eat with a so-called brother if he is immoral, covetous, or an idolater so on and so on. The reason that you're not to break bread, the reason you're not to eat with an unrepentant um, so-called brother is because it brings just the breaking of bread and eating together brings a fellowship there, an intimacy that is not proper if someone is unrepentant. There should not be that sweet of a fellowship amongst brethren if somebody is an unrepentant sin. And that's why Paul says, um, that's more of a matter of church discipline that they're under, which excludes the, the, the sweet fellowship that is there when you're breaking bread um, with a brother, with a brother. So the breaking of bread, no matter how you look at it, is no light thing. Um, no matter how you look at it, it's a very intimate, sweet fellowship that takes place amongst brethren. And so we need to be more thankful, we need to be more joyous, and we need to be more unified Anytime we come together to break bread, whether, whether it's a meal after church, as we oftentimes do, or in especially when we come together to break bread in the Lord's Supper. Now, certainly, but, but certainly not least, Luke is going to go on in this list here of, of marks of the healthy church to look at the last aspect here, which Luke says this was a continually praying church. A continually praying church, and um, we have seen this most certainly in our, in our uh, survey of the book of Acts in Sunday school. Um, but let's just quickly look here at just a couple examples in our text of how this church was in fact a praying church. Um, note: Look back in Acts one fourteen. Acts one fourteen. This is a description of those hundred and twenty. The, the The church started off with prayer. Acts 1.14 says these were, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Notice the same language there. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Look in Acts 1.24, probably on the same page. Acts 1.24, the church was there praying to the Lord for guidance. This is where they were seeking to replace Judas who had betrayed the Lord and 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 committed suicide, Um, they were seeking the Lord through prayer. And also note Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, just to see the significance of prayer in the early church, notice what the apostles are doing in Acts chapter 6. They actually end up devoting, they actually end up um, creating, I should say, an entirely new office of of church leadership. um, So for the very reason that they can be devoted to prayer, I think that they create the office of the deacon here. There's, there's much work to be done in the church. They need servants. So they uh, set apart uh, men to be, um, to fill that role of work. And the apostles say in Acts 6, 4, that they do this so that they can be devoted to prayer and to the word of God. That's how significant prayer was, that the apostles actually set up an entirely different um, office in the church so that they could be devoted to this. That's the significance of prayer in the early church. Um, Maybe lastly on prayer, let's look at an example of prayer. We have have an example of it. Acts chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 24. Let's look at this prayer of the early church. Acts chapter 4 verse 24 um, I'll read down through verse 30 Acts 4:24 says and when they heard this they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said O Lord it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the holy spirit through the mouth of our father David your servant said why did the gentiles rage and the people's devised, futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Now that's a prayer, is it not? Um, Notice the confidence in the sovereignty of God of these early believers. Know the use of scripture All of that text there that's probably in all caps in your Bible is the early church using Scripture in their prayer to pray back to God. And notice again verse 24. Notice the unity in this church's prayer. It says that they lifted their voices to God with one accord. With one accord. That was the unity that was going on as this church prayed. Uh, We pray several times Throughout our services, and we don't need to take it for granted. Um, If Pastor Emilio is up here praying, if anybody is up here praying, um, you should be praying with them. You should be amening everything that they say. Um, I've been guilty myself of this. I can be in the back trying to jot my notes down for the announcements or make sure everything's ready for the Lord's Supper, these kinds of things. I've been guilty of that. Um, but I think that it would be better if I came up here and just completely winged all of the announcements. It would be better to partake in the communion that's going on with God while our church is praying. That's how important the prayer is because when there's uh, communion, when, when, when there's communication going on with God, um, this is not a downtime for the church. Um, this is, in fact, if you think about it, one of the most solemn things that could possibly go on in the church service is having God's ear because when we pray, God is actively stooping down, listening to the pleas, to the prayers of his children. And how do you think God views our, our low view of, of having his attention? We have God's attention and we're, we're doing other things. Um, I think of how, how parents feel um, when, you, when you gather your, your kids together and, and you're uh, pleading to the Lord for them. You're trying to pray with them. You're, you're praying for their souls to be saved. Um, you could be praying for their health, all of these very important things. You, know, you can be interceding with the Lord for them, you know, and you'll peek over and look at them, and, and you'll catch them uh, playing with their stuffed animals or playing with their toys or something, having no clue um, that, that you are speaking with God. They, they don't get it. They don't see the significance of it. You know? and, and when we see that in our children, we're grieved. We want them to understand prayer. We want them to understand that we are actually talking with God. Um, And I can only assume that God is no less grieved when when we are just like our children and are half-hearted when communion is going on with our prayers. We should take full advantage and honor the Lord by praying when the church is, is praying. So, to summarize, to summarize this early church, we've seen it everything that the spirit-filled church was doing was god-centered everything they did was god-centered focused on the work of christ and what are the outworkings what is the result of having a a church like this a church with with great unity and communion with not only the people but with god Um, we don't we don't see in this text that this church becomes a very isolated uh, commune that's not what happens um, look at Acts 2:47. We read it, but just note it again. Acts 2:47 says they were praising God, and they were having favor with all of the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This church was obviously not silent. This church was obviously going out into the communities, telling people about what God was doing in their midst. They were sharing the gospel with people. We know this because the text just told us that people day by day were being saved. And people cannot be saved unless we, the church, are sharing the gospel. There's no way to be saved unless somebody shares the gospel with you. So we know what was happening in this early church. This church was enjoying a very sweet, wonderful time. They were having the apostles teaching. They were having great unity, communion with God and, in prayer um but these graces in in and of themselves it was not the end all God was preparing the church to fulfill the ministry that he gave to the church in Acts 1 8. Acts 1 8 Jesus commanded before he ascended the church he said but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth The church was working out the fruit of all of these blessings that God had given them. And we as a church here and now have the same blessing. We have the same mission to continue the preaching of the gospel and the furthering of God's church. And this work will not end until every one of God's elect is saved. We're going to keep preaching the gospel until the last of God's sheep hears the message and is brought into his fold and we'll keep working until then. Then Christ will return, and then this eternal worship service will begin. But until then, there's work to be done. Um, God wasn't only preparing this church. We know this from our study in Acts. He wasn't only preparing them to share the gospel with others. Um, He was preparing them with these graces to suffer because persecution is coming um, up on this church here in the book of Acts. Acts. These graces of of the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, was preparing them for a a time of suffering, a very hard time of suffering. So likewise, just as this church was being prepared for these things, for the work of evangelism, for the work of persecution and suffering, so we too, brothers and sisters, should take full advantage of the time that we have to, to give ourselves and devote ourselves to these things, to the freedoms that we still have to devote ourselves to these things. um, We should need to take full advantage. I don't want us to have a a low view of these graces. These graces in our text here today um, can seem very monotonous at times, very ordinary, because we've had so much freedom, so much time to participate in them. But the whole point of why we preach this text was so that we could realize that these are the marks that God has ordained to make his church sanctified. This is what God has ordained for us to become more Christ-like. These are what's going to conform us into his image. And so, brothers and sisters, just as Acts 2.42 describes this church, so let us continually devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, you have indeed answered prayer, Father, just at the completion of this sermon, Father, and I, and I thank you and praise you for that, God. I thank you for all of these blessings, God, all of these graces, Father, which is what they are, they're graces that you've given to us, Father. Father, may the preaching of your word as we study the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching, God, may it unify us, God, May it unify us so that we'll be of one mind, so that we'll be united in doctrine in this church, Father. Great unity is what we pray for. Father, may our fellowship, Father, be so rich, Father, so real, God, that we would sacrifice for the brothers and sisters in this church, God. And I pray that your spirit, Father, would bless our communion services, God, as we break the bread, Father, may we all be stirred up. Father, in unison, that it wouldn't simply be an isolated um, individual act, God, but that we would look around even at this church and that we would bless you by proclaiming the Lord's death together as we eat and drink together, God. And lastly, Father, we pray that you would help us, God, to be a praying church, Father, not only at our houses, God, but also when we come together, God, stir us up to pray, Father, we pray that you would bless our church. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.